Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now, I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. So many, many years ago, uh, everybody knows that Hurricane Katrina kind of came and, and devastated the New Orleans area. And obviously the community took some time to rebuild and it was after many, many months of rebuilding and kind of uh, re-putting their lives back together that there was eventually a Friday night football game. A football game between some of the most intense rivals in this area and the whole community was ready to watch. And as you can imagine, as the football game is getting ready to begin, the stands are getting packed. I mean, shoulder-to-shoulder people sitting right next to each other, no wiggle room. The stands are absolutely packed, ready for this game for the first time after a community had rebuilt from this devastating hurricane. And what some of the school officials and athletic directors began to notice as this game began and the stands were packed is about halfway through, they noticed nobody is actually watching this football game. Like the, you have these two rival teams, this whole community has just been rebuilt. People should be like locked on this football game and nobody seems to be watching it. And the reason why is because they had not yet rebuilt the scoreboard on the field. And so nobody knew the score. So nobody was paying attention to the game because nobody knew the score. Now, I pulled this image of a scoreboard, and at first I was going to say, we obviously know this is not a Wayland scoreboard because home team is ahead. But I will say this. It's a, it could be a lady sport in Wayland because we have really good lady sports here in Wayland. So uh, it, could be, it could be that. We'll, we'll call it a lazy, ladies' Wayland scoreboard, not a guy's Wayland scoreboard. Some of you are ready to walk out already, aren't you? <laughs> oh, man, where was I? ADD. Okay. Uh, here's the thing. Scoreboards. Scoreboards are incredibly useful and helpful in sports. But scoreboards are one of the most damaging things that we could have in our relationships. Scoreboards are important for sports and knowing who's winning and losing a game, but scoreboards can be devastating for relationships. And there are some of us here, some of us watching online who live our lives with scoreboards with other people. We always know who's winning. We always know who's losing. We always know who owes who in a relationship or who is owed in a relationship. Far too many of us walk through this life with scoreboards. In fact, some of us already this morning have docked points from the team because we left the toilet seat up or hair in the shower drain. See, we always know the score. And what's worse is some of us don't actually share our scoring system with the people around us, so the people around us can never measure up or meet our imaginary scoreboard. Now, I want to get really honest this morning, because this is not a sermon about relationships between family and spouses. I want to ask the question, how many of us, if we were honest, have a scoreboard with God? How many of us, 
if we're honest, keep kind of this winning, losing tally with God. Like, God, you came through here, and so you are worthy of my trust in this area, but God, I really feel like you let me down over here, and I'm having a hard time trusting you. How many of us have ever made a deal with God? This is, God, if you, if you do this for me, I will do this. Or God, if you do this, I will not do this. How many of us have ever done that before? I'll go first and say I have. Many times in my life, I, I, I live sometimes as if there's a scoreboard between me and God, and I always know who is winning and who is losing and who is up and who is down. But here's the reality. We don't get to use the same scoring system with God as we do with our spouse who leaves the toilet seat up. In fact, what would your life look like if you lived in a way that God didn't need to earn your trust or re-earn your trust, but he already had it? how might your life change? Would, you, would your priorities look different? If you lived in a way that just said, God, you already have my trust, that doesn't waver. Would you maybe, would you maybe grow in generosity? Would you maybe take more risks from faith? Some of us maybe would take less risks if, if we trusted God more. Some of us would know to put the brake pedal on instead of the gas pedal in certain areas of our life. What would your life look like? What would change if God didn't have to earn and re-earn your trust, if there was no scoring system, no scoreboard, but he already had it, if that was a constant in your life? That is the theme of Psalm 16, the psalm that we're going to be in today. It's an incredible psalm written by David expressing this deep trust in God. And if you're following along with our summer reading plan in the Psalms, we're actually on schedule to read Psalm 16 today in that plan. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, but if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm chapter 16, verse 1. Psalm chapter 16, verse 1. We're going to dive into this together. This is what David says. He says, Preserve me, O God. For in you, I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my master. I have no good apart from you. So before we read on here, I want to tell you what we already know about the psalm kind of jumping in. We know that David is writing this psalm from a place of suffering, of peril, of hardship. In fact, his very first word in the psalm is preserve me. This is a cry for help. This is a, hey, God, mayday, mayday. I am in a very, very hard situation right now. I'm suffering. I'm hurting. My circumstance that I'm standing on is sinking sand, and I am drowning, God. This is a cry for help, a lifeline when he says, preserve me. Oh, God, we don't know exactly what David is going through here. Some scholars believe this is post-David and Bathsheba and uh, kind of the whole kind of calamity that that situation brought. Others believe this is written when Saul was pursuing David. I'm not going to speculate on exactly what's going on because we don't know. But what we do know is that David is in a crisis situation. He's hurting. He's deeply wounded. And the very first line of this psalm is a cry for help. And what I love about the way David talks to God and the way that he interacts with God is he doesn't keep a scoreboard with God. Because if he kept a scoreboard with God, his psalms would sound a lot more like, God, I did this for you. Why haven't you been faithful to me? If he kept a scoreboard with God, he would, he would ask God, God, how, how can I actually trust you and believe that you are good? He doesn't keep a scoreboard with God. 
Instead, what he says about God is, apart from you, I have no good thing. That my entire world is collapsing. That my enemies are pursuing me. That my plans are falling through. That I've lost people I love, and apart from you, God, I have no good thing. See, the problem is is that some of us, we put God on the same playing field when it comes to our trust as we do our unfaithful spouse. That if our situation lets us down or our circumstance goes in a way that we don't want it to, some of us live with an unspoken belief that God actually has to re-earn our trust because he let us down. See, doubt creeps in when the things I believe about God are challenged by my circumstances. When I'm living and reading about who God is and my life seems to contradict the things I know about God and the things I read about God, every single one of us have been in those moments where doubt creeps in because my circumstance doesn't line up with what I believe about God. Maybe you struggled for years and years and years with infertility. And you've wrestled with this. We have friends who we've walked with very, very closely who have been in this situation. And finally, after years of trying, you get pregnant, only to miscarry a few months later. And in those moments, our trust in God is shaken. Our scoreboard is tilted. Maybe for you, you you served faithfully at a company for decades and you served and you worked and you were the best employee possible. And because of COVID, your life fell apart. You lost your job and you're struggling right now. And in those moments, our scoreboard with God is shaken. It's rattled. God felt close. And then my story hit a plot twist, and now God feels far away from me. How many of us have ever been in a situation like that? I'd say that's probably a pretty universal experience. I've been there, you've probably been there, and maybe you are there right now. And here's what I love about this psalm. David is not saying, God, my problems are over here and you're over here. And in my mind, I can come somehow separate those. That God, he's not saying, God, you are separated. You are disinterested. You are distant. Because when that happens, what some of us tend to think is, God, did you do this to me? Like, did you bring the situation on me? Or maybe even worse, God, you sat back apathetically while this happened to me and you don't seem to care. I don't know which one is worse between those two. And we find ourselves in this position where we are shaking our fist at the sky and we are asking God, why have you let me down? Why are you unfaithful to me? I've walked with a lot of people in this church who have asked that very question of God. I've walked with people who, who have come to me and said, I I can't ask God why. That's the wrong question to ask. That's a sinful question to ask. I'll often hear from people, especially in the older generation, I cannot ask God the question why. And to that, I always respond, have you read the Psalms? Because why is one of the most common questions in the Psalms, but there's two ways to ask God why. The first way is one that demands an explanation, an answer, kind of a rationale for the suffering or the pain that you're walking through, that is the why of mistrust. That is a dangerous why to ask God. 
The Psalms ask God why in a different way. It is, it is asking God why in the sense of trust. Like, God, I may not understand what you are doing, but I love you and I trust you and my eyes are locked on you. I will not stand on the sinking sand of my circumstances. I will stand on the rock that you are God in the midst of this. And so when we cry out to God why in the midst of our suffering, don't do it in just a way that demands an answer from God as if he somehow missed his side of the scoreboard and owes you something. Now, when you ask God why, cry out to God in utter dependence on him. Allow him to be present with you. Allow him to hold you as you cry out, why God? Why is this happening? What are you doing? I don't understand this. My life is crumbling, but despite that, I am going to find my refuge in you because you are the only rock that I can stand on. Everything else is sinking sand. But what happens when we trust God and our circumstances don't change? What happens when we put our faith in God and our circumstances don't change. Well, what David says to do is, well, in that case, just, just run to your money. Run to your talents. No, that's not what he says at all. What he says, if you continue reading in verse four here is, is this. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. Or take their names on my lips. The cup, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The sorrows of those who run to another God in the midst of suffering will multiply. The sorrows of those who keep a scoreboard with God will multiply. But those who run to Yahweh, the refuge, man, they will find peace. They will find hope. So I want to invite us this morning to do a little self-evaluation. I've been wrestling with this over this past week in my own life, and and I want to invite you into some of this wrestling. And so if you have a a piece of paper or something to write with, maybe your phone, pull that out. And I just want you to kind of think through these different questions and think about what this means for your own life. I'm going to ask you a series of three questions here. The first one is this, which do I trust more? My feelings or faith? Which do I trust more, feelings or faith? Some of us have been in seasons of waiting and waiting and waiting, and our scoreboard is changing with God. Our feelings are taking over what once was faith because God has somehow not proven himself or shown up or kind of acted in the way we wanted or given us a satisfactory explanation. And so faith, faith is beyond me. Feelings are in me. And some of us are trusting our feelings more than anything else. And our feelings, they will deceive us and they will let us down because they are solely what is within us. But our faith, our faith is about putting our trust in something beyond us. Which do you trust more, what is in you or what is beyond you? The second one here, which do I trust more, the source or resources? Your job, your money, your talents, your house, your abilities, your relationships, all of those things are resources. And they are not a bad thing, 
They are a good thing. God has gifted us those things. He has blessed us with those things. But what all too often happens is that we find ourselves putting our trust on the sinking sand of resources when God's invitation is to put our trust in him who is the source of life. And I'm here to tell you there is not a single resource that can be taken from you and cause you to fail and falter if your trust is in the source of life. Nothing. There's no resource that can be stripped away from you that that will shake you, that will cause you to, to, to give up or drown or die if you are connected directly to the source. Which do I trust more? Resource or source? And then the last one here. Do I trust my problems or his promises more in my life? Do I trust the things that are happening to me and around me, or do I trust what God says about me? David says, the Lord is my chosen portion. And you see, when we find ourselves in these situations where uh, our, our Our life is crumbling. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or abandonment from somebody. What we often tend to think to ourselves is we have no choices. But what David is saying here is you actually do have a choice where you will run in these situations. You have a choice. You can double down on your problems or you can deeply root yourself in his Promises Again, what is in me or what is beyond me? Which do I trust more? And so how is it that David can sing in the middle of his storm louder and louder and we can hear his praises roar? It's like we sang that a few minutes ago. Like what is it that, that, that allows David to raise a hallelujah in the middle of his storm, in the middle of his situation? What allows him to praise God in the midst of this, because David understands something that I think you and I miss all the time. I miss it at least. Maybe you don't. I do. This is what he understands. When we face trouble, God doesn't always give us an answer for why. There are some things in this life that you will face that God will not explain to you, that he will not give you an answer why. When we are in storms, God doesn't always vindicate us from our situation. And when we are in a dark season, with no end in sight, God doesn't always let us see his timeline. That is a hard truth that some of us need to hear this morning. Sometimes we don't have explanations for why things happen to us. But what David understands is that God isn't just trustworthy because of his situation. God is trustworthy because he offers himself. That it's his very presence that he offers David in the midst of his storm. There's an author named Brené Brown who I love. I love her books. I love kind of what she t- talks about and, and, and stuff like that. And she, she talks about how when you're, when you're walking through a painful season, there's essentially two types of people in your life. One is that friend, maybe you're in a pit and you're, you're suffering with something. One is the friend who seems to come in as the know-it-all, right? who seems to come in and have all the answers or kind of all the explanations, who comes in and maybe tries to paint silver linings over your clouds and try to just like, and those people are really, really annoying. I'm just going <laughs> to call it out in the room, okay? Those are really, that's an annoying thing to do when you're suffering. You don't want to hear platitudes when you're suffering, when you're in the pit. But then there's another type of friend. 
The other type of friend is the type of friend who sees you in the pit and who climbs down in there with you. And they don't always have the answers to give you, and they don't have the ability to free you from your situation, but what they do have the ability to do is they have the ability to sit with you in your mess, to cry with you, to hold you, to listen to you. And I believe what David is saying is God is a lot more like that second kind of friend. That he is the one who gets in the pit with us. That in the midst of our tears, he has tears in his own eyes. That in the midst of our pain and suffering, that he is in pain and that he is suffering right alongside us. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, the book of Hebrews calls Jesus a co-sufferer with us. That is the approach of God to suffering in the world, that he isn't distant from our suffering, that he isn't distant from our pain, that he is trustworthy because he gets into it with us and feels all of it alongside us. That is why God can be trusted in the midst of our suffering, not because he provides easy explanations or easy platitudes or shows up as a know-it-all, but because he gets in the mess with us. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. God is trustworthy because he offers himself. As David understood heaven, he would not have thought of heaven as this problem-free kind of life and euphoria. David understood heaven a different way. I think some of us think of heaven as like a vacation of Florida, where like the weather's nice and the people are nice and there's no worries. That's not how the Bible speaks about heaven. I know, right? Some of us really like Florida, although it feels like Florida out there right now. This is how David understood heaven. I want you to understand this. David understood heaven primarily as unbroken intimacy with the presence of God. I'm going to say that again. David understood heaven primarily as unbroken intimacy, unbroken connection with God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of storms. For David, heaven is this unity, this unbrokenness with God's presence in his life. And so if you continue reading here in Psalm 16, finishing up the chapter in verse 8, this is what he says. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not, what? You will not abandon my soul to Sheol which is in this context just a way of saying hell or God forsakenness. You will not abandon my, play, my soul to that place or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Can I get an amen from somebody? <laughs> see, there's no scoreboard for David with God. There's no, you do this and I'll do this, or you prove yourself here and I'll prove myself there. For David, God is trustworthy because God offers himself. Now, there's something about this psalm that I didn't tell you. This psalm is actually not about you. This psalm is not about me. And it's actually not even about David. This psalm is about someone else. Someone who came after David. Someone who is far greater than David. One of David's descendants named Jesus. How do I know this? Because Paul, uh, Peter explicitly says it in Acts 2. 
In fact, the the words aren't going to be on the screen, but I just want to read this over you this morning. Peter is preaching to the crowd after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and this is what he says about this psalm that we just read. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says this concerning Jesus, and then he quotes the psalm here, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh, getting a little heated here. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter goes on to say, David, David was just a man, but David's psalm points to someone far greater than David. That this was actually not about David's life, but this was a prophetic word about Jesus, which means, don't miss this, which means is it is as if David is saying, if you want to know that God is trustworthy in your circumstance, if you want to know that God can be trusted in your storm, don't stop looking at Jesus. Don't stop looking to him. Because the ultimate penalty for our sins is God forsakenness. It's for God to withdraw his presence from us in our lives. That is the ultimate penalty for sins. And what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection is he entered into that God forsakenness so you wouldn't have to. He entered into all of the suffering and all of the pain of the world, so much so that on the cross, he cries out the words of the Psalms and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus went through hell so that you could experience heaven. And that is why God is trustworthy. That is why God can be trusted in our storms, that our heaven is experienced through Jesus' hell that he went through here on earth. Our, broken, our unbroken intimacy with God is experienced through Christ's God-forsakenness on the cross. That is the hope of the gospel. Amen. See, there's no, there's no need for scoreboards with God because you get what he paid for. There's no need for wavering trust with God because we have the person of Jesus and when we keep our eyes locked and fixed on Jesus... And we are standing on a firm foundation. God is trustworthy because he offered himself and he has always offered himself. There's an author that many of you probably know of. Um, His name is C.S. Lewis. Any Chronicles of Narnia fan in here? Yeah, a few of us big into that. Well, there's a story that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Magician's Nephew. And there's, there's some scenes in the story that are so potent and so powerful about this, this kid named Diggory. And Diggory is, he has a mother who is just dying. And there's no cure for her condition. And she is suffering. And he goes to the godlike figure, Aslan, who represents Jesus. And he says, please just give me a cure for my mother who is dying. 
He bags Zazlan. He looks in his eyes. He says, Just, is there a fruit or is there something that I can take to my mother so that she can be healed? I know you can do it. And Lewis said, Aslan didn't, didn't give him a yes or a no. He didn't give him an explanation or a why. All, CS, all Diggory could see as he got close to the lion were the tears streaming down the lion's face and in his eyes. And what Diggory understood was that God was feeling and was in his pain right next to him. Now that sounds like a cute story unless you're actually in a season of suffering right now. And what you may not know about that story is that C.S. Lewis actually wrote that story about himself. That as a 10-year-old boy, his, his mom had died of cancer and he had gone to God just like Diggory went to Aslan time and time again. And there wasn't an explanation. And there wasn't an answer. And so when C.S. Lewis wrote The Magician's Nephew, he was writing it about himself. He was writing it through the pain of losing his mom, but he was also writing it from a place of joy because he was engaged to be married. He had found the love of his life. He was ecstatic, excited beyond words until his fiance got the very same kind of cancer that had killed his mom as a child. And so it's in this season that Lewis is wrestling with this pain and this heartache and this hardship. And he writes a book called The Problem of Pain, which become known later as Mere Christianity, where he tries to explain and understand God's interaction with pain and suffering in the world. But then his fiance dies, he loses her. And he writes another book called A Grief Observed. And this is one of the most honest, raw, just kind of unfiltered perspectives on suffering in the world where Lewis didn't even publish it under his own name because it was that raw as he's grieving the loss of his fiance. In it, he says things like losing someone you love is like amputation. That her absence is like the sky spread out over everything. That there is not a bone in my body that does not feel this grief. But in the midst of all of this, the conclusion that he lands on after walking through this can be summed up in this quote from the book here, that I need Christ, not something that resembles him. That I need the source, that I need the stability that only Jesus can offer, that I am not going to stand on the sinking sand of my circumstances, but I am going to stand on the firm foundation that is Jesus Christ in my life who has already defeated death on our behalf. You see, this past week, I had so many meetings with people in our church who are walking through their own personal hells, their own seasons of suffering. And I don't always have the words in these situations. I don't always know how to fix it. In fact, I rarely can. But this is what I will tell you. That we need Christ. Not something that resembles him. So I don't know where you're at this morning. And I, I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know what hell you are carrying in on your back this morning. But the invitation is the same. No scoreboards, 
no deals with God, no pretense, no masks, no trying to be something you're not in front of Jesus. Just come to Jesus and re-come to Jesus and come to Jesus again and again and again and never stop coming to the person of Jesus, the only one who is a foundation in our suffering. So what we want to do this morning is we want to open up a time and space for us to worship Jesus together, to come, to pour ourselves out. Maybe for you this morning, it's pouring out to God and asking him, why? Why, God? I trust you, but I don't understand you. And just pouring out and asking God, why? Maybe for others of us, it's just this honest God, this is what I'm feeling right now. I'm putting a lot more weight in my feelings than in faith. I want to open up this time for us to just lament and to come to Jesus with eyes fixed on him, acknowledging that he is the only one who is a foundation for our lives. He is trustworthy because he offered himself to us. So if you want to come forward, if you want to kneel, if you want to pray with someone, I'll be up here. I'd love to pray with you or pray for you. And we're going to worship Jesus together this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. That God, as we sang, it is your presence among us that fuels everything we do. That God, you are not distant. You are not absent. You are not apathetic in the midst of our suffering. You are right here in it with us. As the New Testament says, you are a co-sufferer. And so God, for people who are in the valley right now, people who are suffering, people who are hurting and grieving in this place and watching online. God, may you show them your face in a way that you have never showed them before. May you reveal your presence to them, your closeness to them in a way they have never experienced in their lives before. God, for those of us who maybe are on mountaintops this morning, we walk in and we don't have a care in the world and now we're depressed after a sermon like this. God, I pray that that those people in this room will build their life on your firm foundation now, not to be tricked into the things that are going well as their firm foundation or a resource or feelings that feel good, God, but that they will also build their lives on the firm foundation that can only be found in you. And so, Jesus, we say it again, we need you. We don't want the counterfeits. We don't want the scoreboards. We don't want the deals. We don't want the pretense. We need you. And so that's the cry of our heart this morning. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name, the holy name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen.